0: Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by FedEctus. Go
1: to www.fodectus.com for more information. Welcome to another edition of Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me as always is Johan. How's it going today, Johan?
2: Very good, Chris. And and for the first time, I want to say good morning. We're recording this uh, in the morning, uh, which is uh, a new experience for all of us.
1: It, it, it is a different experience because typically I'd have a cold beer going. And at 9 o'clock this morning, I couldn't quite go to the fridge and bring a beer out because I think the rest of the workday would be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um,
2: for sure, you know I, I, I had the opportunity. I got, got my two cups of coffee already. Uh, I think my coffee machine is on the last stretch. It has been working very, very hard now for the last year and a half. But uh, you know, we're ready to go. It's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting day. Uh, but an, even more so, a very interesting episode.
1: I'm looking forward to the episode. I'm I'm really excited. What's been happening at Insider's Guide to Energy? Uh, the team has grown, as you know. We've got a couple new producers coming on board. So we've gone from a team of three to two more on t- to the team. So what that will allow us to do is release our sister podcast, which is Insider's Guide to Energy Stories. I'm looking forward to the first episode of that coming out shortly. And it's fun to have a little bit more of a community. When, when, we're, when we're strategizing, and getting ready for the show, to have have that many more players helping, helping produce this show. So I'm, I'm looking forward to some big things in the near future.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think the, the stories is a fantastic way of also highlighting the people, you know, there's a lot of interesting topics and we cover a lot of different things on this show. But what I also think is extremely interesting is the people behind it. And, you know, why, why are they joining the energy? Why are they interested? What keeps them driving? What motivates people? And I think stories, hopefully, we can cover a little bit of this. And and also people that might not be in the limelight every single day. So I, I think it's it's going to be very interesting, you know, by the people, for the I, people somehow.
1: I, I think it's an archival project is the way I position stories. You get to hear about your colleagues no matter their level in the industry, their story of how they got into the industry, why they're in energy, what their worst day was, what their best day was, whatever story they want to share. And these compilations should be pretty interesting. So I'd expect the first one of those to drop in a couple of weeks. Uh, They'll come out on Wednesdays where our typical show comes out on Sundays. So if you're interested in that, keep your eyes open and you're going to see stories soon. But rather than talking about the future, why don't we talk about today? I, I think we've got an amazing guest. We're going to talk more about a guest that likes to go to tropical locations, I think. We keep having these folks that are focused on islands and, and marine and all this cool stuff. I think today's guest has a little bit of that bent as well. So I leave it to you to describe what we're going to go today, Johan.
2: No, I, I think so as well. And, you know, as, as, a, as a Swede, we, we always love, and I think even for, for some of our English friends, we love to talk about the weather. But that's because it mixes so much. You know, we have... 30 degrees one day, we got 10 degrees the other day in the summer. So it's always a kind of a, a topic for conversation. But I think it leads also quite interesting into this, uh, the weather's impact, especially then on the renewable energy and, and and the impact on on the islands around the world. And not just the tropical islands, but we have islands everywhere. Uh, and I think what, is, what I really look forward to today is, is having some, uh, compared to us at least, Chris, someone much younger uh, that has so much experience in the field, uh, recognized in Forbes magazine, for example, as the 30 under 30 energy leaders. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to understand what motivates someone early on as well to, to get involved in this and, and drive it. Um, you know, renewable energy is uh, the future. And I think it's going to be really interesting to get the input from this. But before we get him on board, let me introduce uh, the guest of the week. James uh, Elmore is um, a social entrepreneur. He works a lot with energy and sustainable development, mainly focusing, I think, we'll see, on rural and and island communities. Uh, He's the founder so, uh, of uh, two companies, probably more, we will hear about that, but of Island Innovation and Solar Head of State, which I'm particularly interested to hear more about. Uh, And, you know, great to see also someone then contributing this message out in into the media, you know, been on for BBC, Forbes, HuffPost, Euronews and and all over the place. So really, really excited to have you on board and uh, welcome to the show, James.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me this morning. How are things in uh, Lisbon? I thought. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, surprising actually for a June morning today. It's pretty grey and wet and miserable. But uh, after moving here from from cold and rainy England last year, the last few months have been amazing. Things are starting to open up a little bit now. So, pretty pretty great place to be in general. Fantastic. Good. Yeah. Good. To
2: good to hear. I like Lisbon. But before we start, you know, some of our guests might not have known you uh, or d- do who you are. Uh, could you give us a Bit about you know who are who are you and <laughs>
0: what do you do? <laughs> sure. I, I, well, you gave me a pretty uh, pretty interesting introduction and covered the main things. But you know, my interest in the in the energy sector um, stems uh, from I guess from the the policy side. I mean, I'm definitely um, not an engineer, uh, but I've been working in the energy sector um, for a, for a while now with an interest in seeing. in in the context of islands, as you mentioned. And um, islands globally, okay, the islands in Sweden are a bit different than the islands in the Caribbean, but when it comes to energy, actually, there's still the same context, and often that's the limits of economies of scale or um, particular unique conditions that islands often have. And um, it's very common that islands have these... uh, I guess, extenuating circumstances. If we look at the UK, for example, I know you had a guest from, um, from working in the Northern Isle- Isles of Scotland recently. Um, the areas with the highest levels of fuel poverty are the Northern and Western Isles of Scotland uh, due to various different factors. If we go to the Caribbean and look at the el- electricity prices, um, the Caribbean islands pay anywhere from three to six times more per unit of electricity than Florida does. And yet, actually, the average income locally is, in general, much lower than it is in Florida. And so you have this um, impact. But as we know, energy impacts across the whole of those economies. How can you have competitive industry if your electricity price is so high, for example? Um, And so Island Innovation, my company, is a network globally that connects islands Uh, on sustainable development so energy but much much broader um, to share stories and so we've have uh, participants from Greenland to the Maldives to the South Pacific Tasmania um, and uh, often looking at the, the policy side and I really see that our role is almost as an interpreter sometimes. How do we get the policymakers to talk to the engineers, to the private sector, to the academic researchers? Because as I'm sure you know, often they might have the same goals, but they might as well be speaking different languages. And so within countries, we can try and make those bridges. And globally, we call make, call, make what we call digital bridges between islands to, to share information and, and uh, try and encourage sustainable development.
2: So it's interesting. Out of curiosity, what got you started? Great you know, question. This, this is a broad topic. This is, you know, renewable energy is one thing. Mm-hmm. It, this is policies. This is politics.
0: This is remote areas.
2: How did you end up with this?
0: Sure. So I, I grew up in England um, on a farm in a pretty rural area on the Welsh borders. And I always had this interest in more broadly what I call rural development um, but also uh, renewables. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have the experience of um, traveling to live on an Island uh, off Madagascar in the South Pacific, in the Caribbean, um, and then actually did my master's in island studies, believe it or not, which is a real master's degree. <laughs> People always question that. Um, but essentially looking at, at the development, the economic development prospects of island areas. And that was at a Scottish university. And after spending all this time in these tropical islands, coming and learning about the Scottish context of of island development, really blew my mind to see actually how similar these issues are. I mean, what I just mentioned in the challenges of of electricity delivery to to smaller communities, but also things like waste management, transportation. The big one last year is um, delivery of health services to remote areas and also um, the dependency on tourism. That many of these areas have, and so yes, much more broad than um, than energy or, or electricity. But actually, I see that that often the energy context is at the centre of all these conversations in in some level, um, and and as particularly a small island context, you can't necessarily separate them. So for me, a, a lot of it is about silos and trying to overcome them.
1: So. How does the renewable story start changing this? Right? So I I get the legacy model of energy production would work better at scale. If you look at the grids around the modern societies or the first world countries, it's certainly about scale. That's how it was. And and the disruption that we see in the industry is distributed energy. And so if I'm on an Island community and I have a limited scale, what's the impact?
0: Well, the, the, in general, that impact is normally that your electricity costs are far higher, and I, I always equate it to the leapfrogging concept that we 've seen with telecommunications in in parts of Africa where uh, for, for many communities, there was landlines were never installed there was no point, and they, everyone jumped straight to mobile phones and even in a poorer area, everyone has a mobile phone if you were to discover a new island and build a community, you would not build a grid like we have grids today, you know, and that's, that's as you were saying, the legacy issue that you see across uh, utilities. But in the, in the island context, I mean, there are two, two important questions. One, um, is it an isolated grid or is there a cable to the mainland? Um, and obviously that varies. So two examples of islands with, with cables to the mainland, Samsur in Denmark and Orkney in Scotland both of which had those cables built to export their electricity generated on the mainland uh, to the island community, both of which now are net exporters of electricity because they generate so much with renewables um, that the the cable is actually operating in the opposite way to which it's designed, um, was originally uh, built for. Now, in both of those uh, contexts, that cable actually acts as a uh, limitation on the amount of electricity that they can actually generate and again in the case of Orkney they have days where the cable is at max capacity and they still have <clears throat> excuse me they still have um, uh, they, they still have an energy surplus which is allow uh, electricity surplus rather which has allowed them to then invest in these interesting projects such as um, the hydrogen ferries which are being explored there um, because hydrogen often would not be economically viable but in that case when you have a surplus it actually it actually is so this is that context of islands being these interesting areas to test new concepts which perhaps would not be economically viable on the mainland if we go to say the caribbean or the pacific and look at some isolated island grids you have a have a similar concept actually. It, often when we're talking about renewables, it's not about the environment; it's about the economics. The Economics hundred percent makes sense, and uh, that obviously makes the conversation easier in a way because you're just looking at purely purely economics. And so, um, uh, Hawaii actually is a is a good example of a of a state that has implemented um, pretty good solar regulations and uh, actually got to the point where it pretty much maxed out at least with the the, the the level of the the technology the grid has currently pretty much maxed out how much solar and they actually put a moratorium on new solar being installed there. A lot of the Caribbean islands, Pacific islands have not yet reached that. um, But you can easily see why solar is a economically competitive model there. Um, As you mentioned, distributed also, I think makes a lot of sense from a climate resilience point of view in hurricane vulnerable areas. We saw in Puerto Rico that when you have centralized generation, um, that makes you extremely vulnerable to um, to, to to hurricanes. And so, um, the, the in that case, the islands was pretty much centralized uh, generation was on the southeast coast, and the hurricane made direct contact with where the majority of the islands' electricity was being generated. And so. There was, and unfortunately, this conversation has not moved along as much as it, as it could have. But the immediate post hurricane conversation in Puerto Rico came to be well, when we rebuild um, the grid, it should be multiple interconnected microgrids um, that would then be much more resilient, distributed electricity generation. And that would not only be a beneficial point economically um, because we'd be using more renewables, but would also make us less vulnerable to the risks of climate and, and uh, disasters.
1: So, what are you doing? So it sounds like you bring the community together. You, you so your digital bridge, I think, is your expression to, to these communities. And you just gave us a couple of life lessons or things that were learned. We talked about hurricane damage, or we talked about you know how the Scottish Islands might get power to a place, or bridging you know the cable underwater or, or cable to to an island. Um, what is it? What's the value of bringing these communities together? What's What's the digital bridge do? And and, and how is it transform? transformative to an island nation or a small one or a large one what
0: what's happening right right so i mean our, our our job i really see it as as making those those connections and so on the global level um you know and i want to acknowledge clearly greenland is different to jamaica in many ways right i'm not saying that all, all islands have the same needs but there are certain commonalities and so actually um, about two months into the pandemic last year, we held a series of webinars, uh, bringing together different islands to discuss how they're responding to COVID-19. And it was amazing to see the health, um, sorry, the, uh, the minister of economy from Greenland discussing with the tourism, uh, the head of tourism in the Maldives and how the, their issues were essentially the same. And, and, and there was an opportunity there to say, well, this is how we're doing it. How are you doing it? Um, for some of the smaller islands, often it's, um, you know really interesting because we have stakeholders telling us wow it's we're, we're not alone we're not the only ones dealing with these problems and so historically there's been a lot of reinventing the wheel because people don't know what is happening in communities that have the same needs or the same issue and so uh, often it's just you know making that available making that information available is a huge first step because um, that 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 aren't necessarily blueprints to follow for a lot of the issues, and these communities often being small, you know, there's the, they're not always the most uh, economically viable for a big company to come in and do a do a project. I, again, I'm talking in very general terms because it, it, you know, it's a lot of different directions that we can go in for that. But but I think that's a really important first step um, for me, and you can see this again from what I was saying in the Caribbean. the the economics line up that we should all be using renewables in a lot of these islands and the penetration of renewables should be far higher than it is today. And the things that hold us back are like policy, uh, education and economic investment opportunities. Those three are far more important than the, the the, the technology we have. And I think we often, yeah, go
1: ahead. Who's making the economic investment. So if you're an, a Caribbean island community and you don't have a lot of wealth and tourism has stopped I, I know we had one guest uh, recently did OTEC, and they mm-hmm. were focused on Caribbean islands and pro- providing power and they had all kinds of PPAs in place before COVID COVID hit and then the, the guest said well those all kind of went away because they were for yeah. big, big hotels or resorts that were funding these projects because they wanted to get cheaper energy and not be dependent on oil.
0: Um, who's funding these projects? Yeah and that's a really big problem now I mean we'll talk Pre-COVID and, and post-COVID in, in general levels, um, pre-COVID, there was a general trend, slowly but surely more renewables projects coming into place. Um, they, they, and, and again, it, it varies according to the utility structure. Is it a government-owned utility? Is it a private utility? Um, but the um, a, a lot of the projects have been funded by Overseas Development Aid. Um, to be honest, and in, in some more like middle income, higher income countries there have been there has been some level of, of private investment, as you said, PPAs in place. Um, but I mean, the key issue is that there is not enough investment, actually, that there's not enough money to to invest in these projects, because often the scale is not big enough. And obviously, if you're a company and you want to go into the market in St. Lucia to do a project like this, you still have to go over all the costs of going into a new market. Um, but a market that has two hundred thousand people and likely won't have many more projects for you to invest, whereas you could spend you know a similar amount of money and adopt the Mexican regulations or the Colombian regulations and go into a market with you know millions of people. and um, the one of the challenges in a region like the Caribbean is that every island is an independent state or territory. Um, which means that they often have completely different regulations and you can go to two neighboring islands and you have to deal with a completely different structure, completely different set of regulations. You know, even look at the Eastern Caribbean, you have Guadeloupe, which is part of France, as French as being in 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 Paris or uh, Lyon. You have the British overseas territories, which have their own structure. Puerto Rico is different again. And then each independent country, which is doing its own thing. So this is this is a the, the challenge is 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 um, there is is that lack of investment post COVID now um, of course these economies were completely destroyed because the Caribbean is the most um, econ- uh, economically dependent region on tourism in the world Aruba specifically is the most dependent country ninety percent of income is based on on tourism and so. We'll see when is that returning we've, we keep saying a few more weeks but we've been doing that for the, the whole you know over a year now a few more weeks and things will be there. so it'll be interesting to see now that vaccinations are rolling out especially in the US which is a major market is is that going to recover and that will actually have a direct impact on the resources available to continue with that investment in renewables.
1: Is there a drive to, from your organization or from these groups to standardize or to col- become a collective so that they have bargaining power, economies of scale or any? I'm, I, I get that if everyone's got uh, sovereignty in, in, in their own laws that, that you, mm-hmm. you don't want to you know, give in. But at the end of the day, if the, if the economics of having a standard power distribution system or standards across multiple nations drive your costs down, it may be advantageous.
0: To- totally, um, and economic cooper- uh, economic and political cooperation, is a uh, long saga for the post-independence Caribbean and post-independence Pacific. And you know, we can look at the European Union and how challenging that has been for countries with a lot of resources, um, a certain level of of uh, similarity economically, and still how how long and challenging that is. In the Pacific, you have the Pacific Islands Forum and various different different groups, um, and and there is a certain level of regionalism and collaboration. Similarly, in the Caribbean, you have CARICOM, Caribbean Community, um, which joins all those countries together. Um, the reality is that um, I think there's a lot of political will to do that in the region, not not just for the energy sector, but for the economy in general to create free free freer trade throughout the region. Um, the real politic of that for whatever reason has uh, has not worked even though there are various you know intergovernmental organizations pushing for that um one example would be that you, you know you have uh, very different utility structures in every country and so um trying to yeah i think in theory everyone wants to in practice it's another another yeah. thing yeah always you, you mentioned...
1: political issues at the end of the yeah, day yeah exactly you
0: on but, but set aside from
2: from from the politicals and you know it's another thing that drives this is innovation. You know mm-hmm. you have an opportunity. You mentioned a little bit about the the Danish uh, opportunity with with the uh, the ferries and, and 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 all the rest. But surely this is a platform then to try out new things and, and to test certain things and use this as as kind of the platform to do that. Is that happening? And if so, are there any kind of positive steps in terms of actually utilizing this as test beds or, or pilot projects for, for some kind yeah. of cool projects.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and I think Orkney is the best example that I've got in the North of Scotland, where you have a relatively small, uh, archipelago, less than 20,000 people with three university campuses, the European Marine energy center, particularly for Marine, uh, energy for, um, uh, for the that new Hydrogen Ferries project. There's talk about electric planes. There's all these really interesting energy projects there. Samsung in, in, in Denmark previously was was also one of the leaders, still is one of the leaders, um, but I guess recently I've been hearing more about a lot more about Orkney. And then there are other projects being led. So Volkswagen have recently announced um, on the island of Astipolea in Greece, they're going to do an e-mobility project to make the island uh, kind of a shiny example of e-mobility and this is an island with about fifteen hundred people on, so um, you know, relatively easy to, to do that, I, I, I guess. And of course, you can question to what extent is that going to be more widely applicable to the rest of Greece or the rest of the rest of Europe. But there is something to be said about having a, a small community like that. If you can get it done, that if you or if you can't get it done there, maybe then can you get it done in 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 other places? Um, and I think often this this uh, high energy cost, uh, more generally than not a specific project, but this high energy cost more generally does make many islands a really good place to test these um, renewable renewable concepts and microgrids uh, microgrid ideas etc. In practice, the extent that that's happening obviously varies a lot from from place to place. Yeah, but do you see do you see it
2: as as the Volkswagen example or others? Are these more pilot projects or kind of a, I wouldn't call it a PR stunt, but or or is this actually made in order to, to support the islands? You know, if you have a six times energy price on the local islands uh, and, and you, you kind of make any e- infrastructure for e-mobility, does that really help or is it just to kind mm-hmm. of prove that we're doing something good? Because I think for, from an island point of view, you have the natural resources. So, so how do you monetize on this and not paying over the odds for energy and actually making sure that this transformation could happen
0: right and and of course it's you know it's often a bit of both of course the pr plays a role into it and and for whatever reason as, as humans in our minds the the story of an island is is always an appealing one that gets the the news interest so that definitely does play a role often and you know in, in the case of volkswagen um, the project hasn't kicked off yet so it remains to be seen the benefit but you know i'm i'm confident that that will have a uh, benefit for the local community and the tourism industry etc um i think in general though the islands that have been most successful with these projects has been when the um the i guess the push has come from the local community which is the case in samso and and orkney um because when a when an outside company kind of comes in or a government comes in and imposes a a great idea um if if there is not local uptake and if locals do not see the benefit then the concept of testing becomes very difficult am i a lab rat or am i so we we often use the concept that we use the term lighthouses instead of uh instead of testbed because the connotations are being tested on um but but as long as that benefit is clear to the local community and it's not being tested on at the expense of them or without that local benefit. And there are examples of places that have been used by by central government. You can look at some of the, the projects now happening in, in India uh, with uh, some of the offshore islands there, like Shadweep and the Andaman Islands, where the central government is kind of using them as a publicity element to further their own political goals at the expense of the local islands had similar in, 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 um, in, in other places as well. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky, but, but as I was saying before, often all of these conversations, just as much as the technology and engineering side, they come back to social politics, uh, and, and all of those other elements. So what is but, the
1: But isn't that quite interesting then, because- um, I, I, I wonder if, if you do have you, know, you have the Volkswagen example or these other examples so how does that change the lives of the residents if you're 20,000 person or 2,000 person community uh, my experience at least in the Caribbean is when you're in the resort community it's all very nice and as soon as you go outside the gate you know, go to Dominican Republic you go somewhere like that it's a very different lifestyle and community for the locals so does this create jobs does it create wealth resource are there are there new t- things that you can now do on the island because you have power resource? What What's the change taking place?
0: I think often that change is difficult to see on kind of an individual basis because we're talking about broader economic change and kind of the impact. So if you're able to lower the cost of electricity, obviously the individual is seeing that in their pockets, hopefully at the end of the day, but also does that allow other industries to operate that perhaps would not be economically competitive. I mean, good example is it's far cheaper to um, import chickens that are reared in Atlanta or sorry, in Georgia um, to the Caribbean than it is to rear chickens in the Caribbean often, you know, on the islands. And that's because the chicken industry has very high electricity costs um, to, you know, to keep sheds uh, ventilated, etc. cetera. Um, and so, uh, you know, that applies to a lot of other agricultural industries, but also to anything related to manufacturing, um, how energy has this really big impact. So I mean, even the tourism industry, tourism uh, uses a lot, of, a lot of electricity and energy, and that's all money that is being um, lost that could be invested in other things. Some of the islands have as high as 20, 25 percent of their GDP is being spent on fossil fuel imports currently. And so, if move, a move to renewables also long term is going to keep more of that money circulating in the local economy, so there may not be immediate tangible benefits on, on the whole. But it's it, the question is how do you build economic growth in somewhere that is dependent on tourism? How do you like tourism is an important part of the economy, um, and it, I'm not saying it shouldn't exist, but there should be other opportunities. And a, and a healthy economy is not dependent on one industry, and that's the challenge for many of these tropical right. islands.
1: On the flip side of that, though, so the technology that's been developed today, I mean, you gave a couple of examples of lighthouse projects. Is the off-the-shelf technology for renewables, distributed energy, microgrids, is it portable and so available to these communities, or is there work in R&D and, and, and costs to specializing it for a hurricane-intensive community where, where Scotland may not have that or, or right. something like that? So does it are the tools in the tool belt, I guess, to make this transition?
0: Oh, for, for the tropical island context, the tools are there. I mean, there's a lot of research that's been done around, say, solar and wind and and that how do you make that hurricane proof? And obviously you can't make things one anything one hundred percent hurricane proof, but how do you limit that and whether that's changing how your grid operates or um, even just the design of a solar farm. I mean, we've all seen pictures of, um, I think it was in a, a couple of islands that post-hurricane, uh, the hurricane went straight for a solar farm and of course uh, it didn't survive, but nothing's going to survive a direct hit from a hurricane, you know? So in general, um, you've, you've got to kind of weigh those up and, and that's where, again, a non-technical component is in insurance. How do you ensure these projects and 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 insurance Talking about financial barriers is another really big one for why some of these projects don't end up going ahead, not only because of, of the risks we just mentioned, but also the practicalities of getting something insured in a tiny economy where a lot of the big international firms just don't operate. Or if they do charge a ridiculously high rate, the costs are often several times higher than for an equivalent project in, in Florida, for example.
2: You mentioned a little bit. We we talked about the, um, the the Greek island, the Volkswagen example. I read a while ago; it's probably two, three years ago. Around the uh, one of the hurricanes hits the Caribbean islands, where where suddenly you realize the impact of electric cars because they're not just you know uh, CO two you know free. They're not just you know great cars in in many respects, but they're also a battery capacity that actually can support. The grids after a hurricane hits. So so when you look at making the the infrastructure towards EVs, is that also calculated as some kind of a reduction plan or some kind of an infrastructure plan to use the electric cars as part of the backup? Uh, because batteries
0: is key to, to anything of renewable. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, there's, there's two parts to this. One, I would say that we're not doing enough uh, looking at end of life, particularly for batteries, but for these uh, projects in general, like what happens in twenty years or ten years for batteries at the end of it, there's, there's just not enough being done on that, and that's something I'd like to see see more of. um But we get so excited about the putting these projects up, we don't think that far ahead often. If the is the reality, so that 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 conversation there needs to be more of. There's a really interesting project in Barbados that has been looking at. Um, not necessarily recycling batteries, but using them uh, for other purposes, repurposing them when perhaps they've degraded to the point where they're no longer use, usable for an electric vehicle, but they still have some life in them and can be repurposed for other things. Um, and I think that's quite interesting because it's really just about getting the maximum use out of these things, because the reality is. If you then want to dispose of them, they'll need to be exported from Barbados because there's not the local facilities to actually um, recycle those or, or, or de, de, uh, decommission them. Um, but specifically, electric vehicles—electric vehicles clearly make sense for an island community. I mean, you just you don't have the range anxiety issue, so uh, it's of course they're a great issue. And again, Barbados is one of the leaders globally in electric vehicles um per capita i think they're up there with Norway in the top positions but obviously per capita it's a half million uh, person <laughs> island but still uh, it's up there and partly that's because Barbados's electricity uh Barbados's uh petrol fuel prices are almost as expensive as Norway and so um you, you there's, there's there's a financial interest there to push to for the individual um but also there's a very good dealership that's really pioneered a lot yeah. of this and really pushed the import duties and the government in Barbados is quite progressive on these kind of things in in, in terms of the uh, regulations and import fees and et cetera yeah. that they've been moving forward. The challenge for many of the Caribbean islands is that a substantial part of government revenue comes from fuel duties to import uh, petrol. And so it can actually be a, a really big amount of money. And so in theory, it makes positive sense for everyone to start reducing the amount of, uh, of of imported fuel and move towards electric vehicles. But then the government is not actually taxing that uh, in the same way. If everyone moved to electric vehicles, there's a huge drop in government income. And so, again, it's like it, it makes sense for everyone to move in one direction. But then the reality is that, that changing this whole structure that the government has built a huge part of its income around is actually far more, complicated politically and so it discourages the government in some cases this doesn't apply everywhere but in some cases from moving towards electric vehicles um so so but 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 clearly there's a lot of interest in e-mobility and um it, it, for for terrestrial but also um for for electric ferries as well um yeah. that's uh, not nothing is deployed in uh, the caribbean as far as i know in terms of electric ferries uh, but there's some really good projects in Denmark and Sweden, Norway, um, that are really pushing, pushing those out. And I think there's an interest in, in taking some of these concepts as the range increases on electric ferries and potentially applying that in a Caribbean context too, but it's a little far, a little bit further away so far.
1: Yeah. So who are the actors in the commercial side that are focused on that that you run into, so you've said there's a limited market at times. It's a little disconjointed. So you, you, there's a lot of hurdles to get into it. What major players in the energy industry are trying to help solve this problem? Or are there not? Or is it just a bunch of startups that are trying to do this? Where is tech going to come from?
0: When you say the – I mean, just just the, the transition overall? Yeah, because well, yeah.
1: You, you, you have this island community. You've identified that there's special needs – Globally, unique to different regions, but there's some commonality. Mm -hmm. It's it's a fragmented market, so it's probably not super attractive for some large energy company to go. Well, my you know next quarter we're going to grow five islands and our revenue is going to go up fivefold or something. Um, Who's who's invested in this? Who's the private partnership to this?
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately uh, the the change has got to come locally. We're just kind of trying to do a, a, a small part in facilitating that. But I mean. There are plenty of um, people living on islands who are pushing their own local context, and and you know there there is a there is a big incentive in that there are high electricity costs, and so there's a political incentive to reduce those. Um, and there are high generation costs. And so the utility also have an interest in, in reducing those. And so slowly but surely, uh, government regulation is going in the right direction and um, utilities are going in, in, in a good direction overall to change that. Um, there are big international players that are playing a role. So organizations like the UN Development Program, uh, the Inter American Development Bank, Caribbean Development Bank, um, even uh, overseas donors like Japan, U.S., Australia, and various contexts that are funding these kind of projects and providing technical support to do that. The International Renewable Energy Agency, um, all of the different regional bodies have have people. So th- I mean, there's a there's a lot of people attacking this from all the various uh the various sides um and you know we've talked a lot about the barriers and the problems but i I don't want that to come across as as negative because things are heading in the right direction it's just how do we how do we speed that up how do we continue that change particularly the challenges of um of the last year um i we held an event in in april the island finance forum which was specifically designed to bring in um Banks, regional and international banks, because we want to talk about this financing issue. And often the the challenge is that some of the small or regional banks are quite old school in the way that they approach things. And so these kind of not all of them, some of them yes, but not all of them have really jumped on the opportunity with these um, with these kind of newer, relatively newer industries. Um, but by bringing in some of those uh, those, I, I think local players realistically those are the ones that are actually going to be able to provide the financing on the right scale and to the right amounts instead of waiting for those big international partners but there's a i guess education process that needs to happen uh sometimes
2: so so in the pre-show in the pre-show we talked a little bit about this cap event coming up as well is this is this kind of one way of getting the parties together and Yes, because right? I, I guess with 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 you know working in, in a number of industries and and with too many people, too many chefs, sometimes very little
0: things get done. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, so in November, I guess, just for people who aren't aware of it, in November in Glasgow there'll be the United Nations uh, Climate Change Conference, the COP twenty um, six, which is what the Paris Agreement was several years ago and has been continued every year. Is all. Uh, 196 I believe UN members coming together to try and agree a commitment on on climate change um and so that was cancelled last year for COVID and it's coming together this year and uh the, I think the Paris agreement and these kind of international agreements do play an important role in the overall general trajectory understand why people can be skeptical of these big meetings and, and what actually gets done and agreed at them um In terms of islands, it's particularly interesting because um, I think somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of UN members are small island-developing states. And the UN and these big conferences operate in a one-nation, one-vote setting. So Fiji or St. Kitts have the same voice, in theory, as China and the US. And so they do have a powerful voice and are some of the most vulnerable countries to sea-level rise, climate change, etc., there's a big interest there in in their role. And so there's also been a push by some of those island governments to move forward with these renewables projects so they can actually go and say, look, we're doing it too. And so there's been these big kind of goals set, not always filled, but goals set and in some cases filled um, by island governments to say so they can then go to these international meetings, and say, we're only a small island. We know that our emissions are pretty irrelevant on the global scale, but we're still doing our part um because we're the most vulnerable to to climate change so it'll be interesting to see the impact this has on the broader climate change conversation and obviously on some level that filters down to anyone working in the energy industry as well uh, as it's implemented by local or the government in each case
1: so what do you think the big uh topic This year will be I've read articles saying that not having conferences last year actually hurt the environment because projects couldn't get approved, things couldn't go because people didn't meet. So it actually slowed things down uh, more than in climate change uh, fans would would have liked. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was the nature of the beast. But now that folks are getting together, what are you expecting to be the hot
0: topics of the day? Yeah, I'm not sure if climate change fans is the right word, but I get what you mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Uh and, and totally. I mean it's it's really you know, you hear these I, I think skeptics saying, Oh, well, people flying all over the world to discuss climate change is uh is hardly helpful, but actually these conferences are super important. And of course people have to fly to get there. We don't have any other option right now. But the outcomes of those of these conferences, I mean the fact that you can get 196 countries to agree on something, even if sometimes those goals are not as ambitious as you might want, is 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 powerful. Um, and so that I, I do think that international collaboration is really a critical critical part of of it. And um, the UK government as as the host this year. Um, are, are, have got a pretty progressive uh, agenda when it comes to uh, sustainability and climate change. And so it's good that they'll hopefully be pushing that to an extent in in November. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the actual question was. Sorry. What the but the I- question
1: was, what do you think specifically will come out of it or what's going to be the hot topic? What are people anticipating the results to be from the conference? I mean, going into it,
0: people have expectations, Right, right. Um, A big part of the conversation this year is actually financing adaptation, which is critical for um, small island states. So who is paying for the adaptation? So adaptation is basically we're accepting that climate change is happening and that there's going to be a level of climate change. How do the vulnerable countries, communities adapt to that and renewable energy is obviously mitigation. It's reducing the amount of carbon. But in many cases, as we've discussed, it's also an adaptation technique as well because it's making you less vulnerable to the impacts of, of climate change. Um, and so there's a big discussion on, the um, on, I guess, the finances and the argument put forward by many small and developing countries is the people who, are, who have and are polluted and have and are contributing towards climate change should subsidize and finance the costs borne by the countries that are most vulnerable in adaptation. And so there's a critical conversation that's going to happen there. Obviously the people the, the the people who are being called on to put the money forward don't necessarily want to and will push back as much as possible. But there'll be a meet in the middle and I think the question is not whether there'll be that financing, it's to what extent that financing is going to going to happen. Um the other conversations are around actually the the reporting. So it's great to make all these agreements. It's great to all agree on climate change uh and, and cuts to emissions, but actually how are those measured? Who is measuring them? Who is actually um reporting them? If you're relying on countries to self-report, are you getting the right data? Um so so you know, actually implementing these agreements is 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 challenging. And this event would normally take place every year um, and actually it's pretty much ongoing. there are smaller events throughout the year as well but there'll be an, it, it, I think it'll be important to restart after kind of a pause for the last year on those conversations interesting
1: you want any final questions
2: When I did some uh, research around this and uh, I, I, I obviously looked on a few articles and I read about the, a project I think it was if I'm not mistaken with uh, Jimmy Carter. Who put some uh, water or energy on the roof of the White House? And uh, that apparently uh, triggered something with, with the solar state, and, and, and that you are now working on as well. And I know we have a little bit, a limited number still, but what is this? And what, how? Because this is also obviously, I would assume, <laughs> a way of getting the leaders to, to adapt to this in some shape or form.
0: Right, so um, Island Innovation is is my my company. Um, solar Head of State that you mentioned in the intro is a is an NGO which I'm still uh, still part of, and that originally came out before I was involved as a campaign asking Obama to install solar on the White House, basically with the idea that um, it sets a precedent um, for the president to to have that in a visible location, and there was this whole kind of. Interesting discussion that had happened previously that Jimmy Carter had installed actually solar water heaters on the White House, and that Reagan had then come in and taken them off because supposedly he'd said that it wasn't fitting for a, a fitting technology for a president to use. And so there's been this whole back and forth. People had uh, <laughs> questioned whether uh, the Trump administration was going to take the solar panels that Obama had put on off, etc. cetera. It all becomes a little bit petty, uh, <laughs> to be honest. But uh, anyway, there was this idea that the, the, the White House should, should have solar on. And so that was where the name of that initiative came on, came from. We actually took that and then went to several other leaders around the world and said, you know, you should be installing solar on your parliament, Senate, White House equivalent, whatever the building is. Let's have solar in these visible places. And so I did project, uh, I guess, the year before the pandemic, 2019, on the uh, prime minister's office in Jamaica. Uh, there was a project before that on the presidential palace in in, in the Maldives. So small projects, but designed to kind of tell a story and contribute to this uh, social momentum, basically, of having solar in visible places.
1: So did you see an uptick of solar in the nations where the prime minister or the leader put solar panels on their
0: residents? In the case of Jamaica, they used that as an opportunity to launch the goal for 50% renewables by 2030 in Jamaica. So as part of a goal, I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that we can contribute you know we can attribute this one installation to the general increase in solar in those countries there's a lot of other people doing more tangible things on the ground oh there we go sorry uh maybe that's a a good note to end my uh my my (laughs) discussion
2: fantastic i have the same bells behind me as well but not for now (laughs)
0: they're still going I might have to edit this bit out. That's okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Apparently someone didn't like the direction you were going with your answer.
0: I didn't show you the, <laughs> ah, the culprit. All right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. so where were we
2: (laughs) but i think yeah no but i I think that's i think that was really interesting james i think we're coming up to um to to round up the show um really great to have you on really interesting topics sustainable energy but also the politics around it highlighting this with some examples of of what can be done in, in small scale not only in large scale i thought was really really interesting uh I'm a big fan of this. I thought um, it was some really, really good topics. Chris, some last words.
1: Yeah, for me, what what I see is politics and geopolitics throughout energy, no matter what we do. You you can't separate energy because it's so core to society Mm -hmm. from politics. It it just Mm -hmm. doesn't there. But what's exciting, it's it's the passion of our guests. It's a passion of the folks that want to make the change. And even in the interview, James, you talked about the individual making the change. I said, well, what you know, what, what company's doing this? What government's doing this? And you'd say, well, hold on a second. Those things are happening, but individuals don't want to pay the price, and individuals don't want their island to be underwater. They don't want to pay the oil surcharge charge or whatever the price mm-hmm. is, and they're making the change, and that's exciting. And as we talk to more guests like yourself, what I love is the passion of the change. It's, it's, it's talking about your, your, your White House ventures and putting the solar panels up there to, to make a statement, not necessarily because the incremental energy really changes anything. But what it does is it catches the public's imagination. And you maybe have that one kid that walks by the White House on a tour and goes, well, there's solar panels there. Why don't I have those at home? That's pretty cool. So for me, it was an exciting interview. James, I, I want to thank you for being our guest. I look forward to hearing from more from you in the future and, and exciting things. Uh, I'd like to hear what happens at the conference and, and what, what changes does all these countries of the world get together and, and, and promote in just the near term. Thank you very much for being our guest.
0: Thank you both for having me. Really appreciate it. Great conversation.